You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video for the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, a treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, Annie Mitchell. Father Hezekiah, it is good to see you again. It's, it's good. It's good to be seen. Uh, no, um, good to have everybody here. And uh, as we join in together for this 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time to prepare ourselves for the readings for Sunday for the Mass according to the Novus Ordo lectionary that's given to us here today. So 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. Give us I think the passages. This is the, la- this is the last Sunday before Christ the King, I believe. Yeah, if I'm not so, mistaken, which is which is why we're drawing to a conclusion. Yep, we begin a new reading cycle. Of course, uh, well, I should say the uh, churches, which are using the Novus Ordo lectionary cycle of readings, begin a new cycle of readings. Annie, look, I, our Byzantine lectionary is different than yours, so it's hard for me to remember. Uh, First Sunday of Advent, so we're currently right. in oh, right. year C. Right. And so we've got this weekend and then next weekend is the Solemnity of Christ the King, and that will end year C, and then we will begin with lectionary year A on the first Sunday of Advent. Does that mean we're done with Luke? I think so. I think we're moving in. I think we're going to be in Matthew next year, if I'm not mistaken. We're in the cusp of, 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 of the passion, torture. the resurrection. Oh, well, we save that until Easter. Yeah, but we slog through a whole oh, I know, and we don't get to the end. <laughs> All right, so let's give, <laughs> wait till Holy week. give us our passages for this week, beginning sure. with the prophet Malachi, right? Yeah, the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verses 19 through 20a mm-hmm. is our first reading. Now, just a little note about that, though. Well, um, well okay, give us, okay. Give us us all the readings. Oh, okay. All right. Our responsorial psalm is Mm -hmm. Psalm 98. Mm -hmm. The gospel this weekend is Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. And our epistle is from the second letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Nice. So okay, give us your clarification. What were you going to say about Oh, Malachi? yes, the prophet Malachi. So if you are following along in, like, the lectionary, like, you know, mm-hmm. your little missalette or whatever, it'll be fine. If you have an RSV Bible, however, you will not find Malachi chapter 3, verses 19 through 20a. It will actually be Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Does that mean they cut out a whole passage from Malachi? 
No, it just means they follow the Latin Vulgate. So look, the chapter and verse breaks in your Bibles, guys, are late editions. I've said that many times, late editions of your Bible. So sometimes you might find that there are verse change differences and so forth. And here's a classic one. Whenever I'm teaching, you know, I forget. And so I commonly start reading chapter four, verse one, and then half the people in the group are, ah. and, you know, so, so I panic. I actually, because I always do this while I'm teaching, I get myself into trouble. I'm going to actually take a moment and you can do the same thing too. And I'm going to put right up there above chapter four, verse one in my RSV. I'm going to put for the new American. What is it, Annie? It is chapter three. 319, right? 319. Yeah. So that way I can help. Right in your Bible? You have to write in your Bible, yeah. Although I probably should do that when I was being more careful because I write too fast and I can't read my own handwriting. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, 319. And uh, here we go. Lo, or yes. behold. Go ahead. Malachi, you low. should have found it by now. Malachi is in your Bible either just before the book of Maccabees, right toward the end of your Old Testament, or it's going to be right after Nehemiah or Job or somewhere in there. I can't remember where they put it. Sometimes they'll put it in your historical books over there and uh, whatever. Wherever it's at, you should have been able to find it by now. And if you had to turn to your index, you failed big fat F at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Rip out your table of contents in your Bible and uh, start learning where your books or your bi Bible are by memory. Just, if you haven't found it yet, just hit pause right now and then... Yes. And don't look at your and find it. Yeah. yeah, there you go. We're here for you. We're here for All you. Right. All right. Malachi chapter three, verse 19, or Malachi chapter four, verse one. Yes. Lo, the day is coming, blazing like an oven, when all the proud and all evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, leaving them neither root nor branch says the lord of hosts but for you who fear my name there will arise the son of justice with its healing rays short and sweet short and sweet but very nice and a very powerful text which i love it's the vision here of malachi is is quite beautiful when you allow the imagery he's using to kind of come out and speak to you so being that we're here and can do a bible study Obviously, when it's being proclaimed at Mass, it's a little hard to sit back and like allow all this beautiful poetic text to kind of shine forth, if you will. But I would encourage you to do that as you have your Bibles at home to allow these images, the Son of Justice, to take wing and rise up. Although in, in his translation says healing rays. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at least in my RSV, which I think is a little more literal translation. It talks about the the healing in the in the wings, yeah. So the sun, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, yeah. So there's wow. a beautiful rising up of the Lord. So it's an image we can go back and look at a couple of Old Testament images, ideas, pictures, whatever in the Old Testament together. But first of all, Malachi, who in the yes. world is this guy? Who is he? We don't know. <laughs> no, Fair enough. No. Uh, he's writing. He's writing. It appears as though he's writing during about 500 years before Christ, right after the Babylonian exile, but not right right after, because it appears as though they they're back in the Holy Land, they're back in the Promised Land, 
but it's a total disaster. Yeah, what happens? Okay, and so you can you can kind of see these themes in Zechariah, Zephaniah, yeah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, and these guys right before right before this passage following the same theme. But Malachi kind of lays it out there for us. You can just just a few verses in here kind of gives sets the setting of what's going on in Jerusalem. Go with me to chapter one, Malachi chapter one, verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Uh-oh. You say, yeah, uh-oh. You say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. And you say, how have we polluted it? By thinking that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that no evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that no evil? Present that to your governor. Okay. So they come back from the Babylonian exile. And you can keep your hand here in Malachi. I'm going to flip back to Second Chronicles. All the way back there to Second Chronicles. To the last chapter of Second Chronicles. We have there the last few verses. Chapter, chapter, this is Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so we've had the, the, uh, the Assyrians conquer the north, the Babylonians conquer the south, and then the Persians rise to power, okay, and conquer what the Babylonians had conquered, right? And the Persians are the new superpower, so this is the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be, dis- might be accomplished. The Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. What? This guy's a full-blown pagan who has... Yeah. Who who's is enslaved God's people who are in exile, and what's he going to do? Whoever is among you of his people, may the Lord be with him and go and let him go up. And then you can read the first chapter of Ezra, which is turn your page of your Bible, Ezra chapter one. You can read that first chapter, and then in chapter two, we learn we we come to know about Zerubbabel, who is the rightful heir to the throne of David, who ends up being appointed as governor. So when when we're talking about Malachi, talking about take that to your governor, this is a real guy, okay? And whether Zerubbabel is alive at the time of Malachi or not is unclear, but I, I like to think he is. I love Zerubbabel. Great dedication. That was almost your priestly name, right? Yeah, I'd take the name Zerubbabel. That would have been awesome. You know, Father I mean, Hezekiah is pretty epic, but. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel takes cool. guts. The other name I was thinking about was Zephanethpaneah. Who? Yeah, because that's the name that Pharaoh gave to Joseph. Joseph, yeah, that's yes, right. Yes, in Egypt. Yeah. Anyways, I just like all the crazy names. Anyways, Zerubbabel is a real guy. So, so here's what happens. Cyrus loads these guys up with gold and says, go to Jerusalem and build the temple and get everything restored. So the Babylonians had burned the temple to the ground. Total disaster. Second Kings chapter 25. Go read it. And, and all of a sudden, they go back with money in their hands to build, right? Well, what do they do? Do they go and build the temple of God and restore temple sacrifice? No. Turn uh, with me. Go build their own houses, quickly. don't they? Oh, okay. Sorry. What's that? I was getting ahead. I was getting ahead of you. 
Look at look at look at Haggai. Just go back a few a few prophets right there. It's really easy from Malachi. Just a few few pages. You're gonna find Haggai very short. Okay, and 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 basically Haggai the prophecy, and then the Lord says, "Look, you guys don't have anything. Like there's famine in the land. Why? Why is things going poorly for you now that you returned with gold in your hands? Because verse nine, chapter one, verse nine of Haggai." You have looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew it. I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of Most? Because my house lies in ruins, you morons. Why are you busy your while you busy yourself each with his own house? So they go home and they start building luxury homes with hot tubs and spas and saunas and so forth like that. And they leave the Lord's uh, house in ruin. That's what happened. So now we now that's the context of Malachi, right? So Malachi steps in and says, "Hey, you guys, well." So between there and Malachi, you actually have the building of the temple. The temple ends up getting built. Okay, go read Ezra and Nehemiah. And the temple is built. But when they build the temple, then do they come and offer pure sacrifice? No, because while they have returned to Jerusalem, they've done the thing they're supposed to do. Nevertheless, this is missing, right? The heart is missing. They're, they're, they're living in terms of obligation, and when you learn, live in terms of obligation, it's not long before you break your communion with God because you didn't really care anyways, because your relationship is not a relationship with love. It's one of, of, of dictatorship and slavery. And if it's dictatorship and slavery, who wants that in their life, right? So, so Malachi comes in and says, hey, you're, he's not saying you're not sacrificing. He's not saying at this point that they're not building the temple. He's saying, hey, you built it. You're offering sacrifice. But what are you offering? Your, your second best, right? You're offering your lame animals, the ones that have like the broken leg. You go get that. Or like, here, go sacrifice anyway. that to God. I'll keep my good stuff for myself, right? The, the choice wine for myself and give God the dregs. I'll pull the dollar bill out of my wallet instead of the 20 to put in the offertory. You know, I see sometimes, well, I don't see it because I've got, I, I'm faced towards God, right? sure. I face East at liturgy. But uh, I, I've heard the stories of people making change out of the donation basket. Not, not pretty. So, you know, they'd have a five and they put it in there and take four ones oh back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All wow. right. How have we polluted it? By offering blind animals and sacrifices. Is that no evil? Malachi chapter one, verse eight, right? And then, um, and then I'm going to go to verse um, 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. You people, do you think the Lord is blind as to what you're doing? Okay. Um, he doesn't notice. And then, and so, and so, chapter two is God a curse doesn't of the, the, care. Yeah, God doesn't care. The <laughs> uh, chapter two is a curse of the Levitical priesthood. They've broken wow. their covenant, right? Wow, wow, wow. In chapter two, verse eight, but you have turned aside from from the way you have caused many to stumble by your instruction you have corrupted the covenant of levi therefore you have no communion with me anymore okay wow. it's not good but then in chapter three verse one begins the second half of the prophecy in which in which malachi says or the lord says to malachi this day of corruption is coming to an end for i am going to come and destroy the evildoer yeah, chapter three, verse one, behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of, as in the days of old, as in former years. Yeah. And I'll just, because we're right here, chapter three, verses 10 and following, really six, six and following is all about tithing. Mm-hmm. And it says, cause, cause you may be sitting around here, naughty, naughty Jews, you know, you offered blemish sacrifices that's not right you know we know better because we're christians well guess what malachi is not done the lord's not done he said he says you're cheating god by not tithing and what is the tithe in verse 10 there 10 percent 10 percent of what you have is the lord's the first 10 percent of your flock it's the Lord's. The first 10% of what you bring in in the harvest, it's the Lord's. The first 10% of the grapes that are brought in, take it to the temple. Okay? Look, listen to this. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe. That means 10%. Into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Yeah. And notice for those that don't tithe, what does he say? We need to come up to verse six or verse seven, verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and in your offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Stop it and start bringing the tithe into the house of God. Yeah. And you, so you say, oh, but you know, Father Hezekiah, we don't have lambs with broken legs. And, you know, I'll tell you, when I was appointed as a priest in this parish, one of the first things I did was take the plastic silk flowers and throw them in the dumpster. And I, and I regularly tell the people, God loves real flowers. Okay? <laughs> because, because what are we, we doing? We're giving, yeah, and it's not uncommon this season for people to drive up in the parking lot and say, Father, we want to donate our plastic Christmas tree to the church. It's a beautiful tree, Father. And I say, oh, really? Oh, yes, it's 10 feet tall. We put it in the middle of our house. It's beautiful. We've had it for years. So you're not going to have a Christmas tree this year? Oh, no, no. We bought a new one. Oh, so you want to give God your leftovers. Yeah. And then, of course, you put the Christmas tree together and turn on the lights and half of them don't work. Yeah. They're robbing God. And I'll tell you right now, the vast majority of Christians are robbing God. Bring 10% of your income to the Lord and put him to the test. And you say, I can't afford it. Put him to the test. He said to put him to the test. Do you believe in the Lord? Do you accept his truth? Or is he some kind of vague kind of thing out here, an idea? Or is he real in your life? Do you believe he exists? Because this is the word he says to you today. 
Put me to the test. If I will not open the very windows of heaven and pour down on you every blessing, if you will stop cheating God. I'm going to get off my hobby horse for, uh, you know, calm myself down a little bit here. But it's true. And it's a major problem that we have as Christians. You don't want to know how they built the, 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 the cathedral at Santiago de Compostela? You want to know how they, we had gorgeous churches on every corner of Italy. You ever been to Rome and see these churches? Okay. Well, it's a very simple process. People tithe. It's a Christian practice because it is the practice which goes back to the earliest days of the Old Testament to Melchizedek himself, to the offering and sacrifice of Abel, and to the offering and sacrifice which Adam and Eve refused to do. So you want to be saved? Tithe. 10% of your income. You begin there, and then you do your charity on top of that. Okay? Now, that's my little hobby horse on Malachi. And uh, because Jesus is about to go into the temple, and see a bunch of people that are cheating God. Yeah. And Malachi is very, uh, very beautiful. We haven't even looked at the passage of the text itself, Annie. You're supposed to hold my feet to the hot fire so that we can continue to. Well, we needed progress. to get the context. There's your context. Go ahead. There's our context. So I just wanted to talk about one line in here. Um, but for you who fear my name, there will arise the son of justice with its healing rays. So somebody who is sitting at mass on Sunday, just listening to the reading be proclaimed, not following along, you know, in the missalette or whatever, might wonder if we're talking about son, S-U-N or son, S-O-N, right? Mm -hmm. Son of justice. And note, if you're not following along in your Bible right now, Father, go ahead say it. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. But it's um, S-U-N. S-U-N. Yes, so what it, is the significance of that? The well, son of justice. Well, I mean, in the English, it's, what is it, alliterative? You said it's the son. It's the same. But okay, but going right. back to Hebrew wouldn't have happened. Well, yeah, but we're listening to it in English. Yeah. so Or in Greek, right? Yeah, yeah, we're listening to it. So it's nice. It's a nice alliteration. So anyway, the sun, the sun, the sun, the sun. Like the sun, this, is there some like the Sunrise Morning Show? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. It's a pretty good show. Well, so is that S-O-N or S-U-N? It's S-O-N. But in Malachi, it's Named S-O-N. after the resurrection. Yeah. yeah. So the son of justice is, of course, a pre- prophecy of the coming Christ, right? Now, you say, well, Father Hezekiah, you're going to go too far with that because we're in the Old Testament. And Malachi wouldn't have, what do you mean, prophesying the coming of Jesus? Well, listen, you have to realize this is why we're always hammering on the Babylonian exile. When the Babylonian exile took place, the throne of David appeared to have been lost, right? We don't get a genealogy. Uh, all the way until Matthew. Matthew's genealogy is revelatory. When you read, uh, when when at Mass on cr- Christmas, you guys have the genealogy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, or a couple weeks before, we have it a couple weeks before. Anyways, when you hear that genealogy, you know Abraham was the father of it's uh, all the way through the whole thing, right? The who begats. You should come out like uh, your head should blow off because it's the first time in like seven hundred years that you know that the the the, the throne of David didn't fall. I mean, it fell politically in a world standpoint, but it remained. And, and, and so it's, it's hugely important. So the people of God after the Babylonians are, are waiting. They've come back to the temple. The temple is the throne of God. It is the seat of the king. So they're waiting for the restoration of the kingdom, this desire for the king to be restored because Cyrus, while he gave them money, still ruled over them. And it's only going to get worse generation after generation, right? We were just looking last week at, Ma- at, at Maccabees. 
and 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 the uh Antiochus Epiphanes who comes in and starts forcing all these pagan yeah. rituals on the people of God. It's horrible. So they're under the domination, if you will, the dictatorship, and they're in slavery in their own home. Yeah, Nehemiah says that, right? We are today in slavery in our own home. Ezra or Nehemiah, I think it's Nehemiah. Anyways, the situation wasn't good. And they're yearning for political freedom. This is why, and this is so important, is Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem and get, ends up in the temple now in our gospel progression. They're looking for the restoration of the kingdom. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he's going to the throne city, right? We always think of Jerusalem as the place of the resurrection, the place of the crucifixion or whatever the case may be. It's the throne city of David and the king's going into the temple to take his throne, yeah? So here in, in what was I going with that? In Malachi, this expectation yeah. in chapter three, verse one, behold, I send my messenger and lo, the Lord is coming. Yeah. Chapter three, verse one, behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He's coming guys. And guess what? John the Baptist is going to come before him in the person of Malachi, which we're going to get in chapter four, verse five. Behold, I send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So expecting the coming of Elijah. This is why the Pharisees send representatives down to, to John the Baptist on the Jordan River. What do they ask him? Are you Elijah who's to come? Because they're, they know Malachi and they know Elijah has to return. Jesus says, of course, in Matthew chapter 11, that he is the Elijah who's to come. Which makes Jesus the Lord who's coming into his temple. Yes, Malachi is in expectation with the people that the Lord is going to act. And what is it going to look like when that happens? Behold, the days are coming. Chapter 4, verse 1, the text which we have today. Burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That's the people that don't tithe. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise. And for Christians, knowing of the resurrection, how beautiful that is. I mean, you're like, you're the, the hair on your back wants to like, you know, I just, I know I just lost like three quarters of my audience by telling people that they're going to burn in hell. for not tithing. Try it. You will find a joy that you have never found before. Have you ever wanted the very heavens to open and God to shower like, poor blessings like in your life then time and you see if the lord doesn't do it yeah so okay i'm gonna i'm not gonna mean anymore it's an encouragement all right and here malachi says is going to be a day of 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 reckoning and all those people that are standing around that are kind of like kind of the friends of jesus when he comes to the temple he's going to refine them He's going to purify them. Yeah, he's going to purify them by his word. And when Jesus opens his mouth in the gospel today, he's not taking anything from these guys. Yeah, and he shoots right back at him. I love the pastor we're going to look at today. So now you asked about the son of righteousness some time yeah. ago and this theme, right? Well, in the Old Testament, God is oftentimes referred to as the light right? The light of the Gentiles, the light which is going to go out and shine in the darkness and so forth like that. I wrote a bunch of passages down. You can write them down too if you want. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Psalm 130 verse 6. Yeah. Luke chapter 1 verse 78, the prophecy. We'll turn there real quick. Luke chapter 1 verse 78. This is Zechariah speaking. 
of verse 76 and following. This is verse 76. And you, child, will be, be called the prophet of the Messiah. This is John the Baptist, of course. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. When the day shall dawn upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. Beautiful. I, and of course, those who sit in darkness are the people in Galilee. They're the ones that went, the first ones that went under the Assyrian conquest, the first piece of God's family to be gone. So they're in the, those are the, that's the darkest place of all up there. Wow. And Jesus is going to go up there and minister to them. So anyways, Isaiah chapter two, verse 32, Isaiah chapter 49, verse six, you can keep looking it up. Jesus is seen as this, the light, which is coming, uh, who is the fulfillment of the light of the Old Testament. Yeah. And it's so beautiful that in Genesis chapter one, the very beginning, God opens his mouth and light comes into the world, right? The word of God. Now, not only the physical light, but now he's going to enlighten mankind. Okay, so another wrinkle here, though, that I want to share with you, a little website I found. It's that music group, the chanters of uh, beautiful uh, Gregorian and Orthodox chant. Anyways, I looked it up, and this little explanation I thought was really nice. It says, the ecclesiastical feast day celebrating the nativity of Jesus Christ, which came to be called simply Christ's Mass or Christmas, in English, was added to the calendar in the Eastern Church somewhat later than were the other major feasts. Originally, Christ's nativity and baptism were celebrated on the same day, Epiphany, January 6th. Oh, sorry, Epiphany, January 6th. Much has been written concerning what influences pagan, Persian, or Christian led to December 25th, becoming the feast day of the nativity of Christ. All three, the late Roman pagan holiday of the birth of the unconquered son, the ancient Persian celebration of the birth of Mithras, which means son of justice, and the celebration of the birth of Jesus were each in the mind of the Roman populace to one extent or another during the development of the Christian calendar. This may explain why one of the major hymnological themes of Christmas is light in general and the sun specifically. Orthodox hymnology refers to Christ, quote, dawning from a virgin, is rising from the virgin, right? Yeah. yeah to his nativity, making the light of knowledge dawn on the world, and to him as the day spring from on high, or the day spring from the east. The hymns even apply the title Son of Justice to Jesus Christ. Christians seem to say, you all worship the sun in the sky or call this false god Mithras the son of justice, whereas we worship the true God, the spiritual, noetic son of justice, Jesus Christ, the son of God and the true giver of light, and of life and this this um i printed off for all of you the hymn which is sung on christmas in the byzantine tradition your nativity o christ our god has shed on the world the light of wisdom for by it those who worship the stars were taught by a star to worship you the son of righteousness or the son of justice right and to and to know you as the orient that rises from on high, O Lord, glory to you. And this brings in a whole other theme. I want to just tie in here really quickly. Annie, I, I don't know if you have other questions. We need to get to the gospel for time. But this idea of Jesus as the light of the world is a powerful image which, which caused the early Christians to do something very important. And that was to turn always to face the east, where mm -hmm. the sun rises in the east every morning as a symbol of Jesus rising from the dead. Because Jesus, of course, is the creator of the world. 
And, and all of this world is meant, every aspect of this world is supposed to be revelatory of who God is. It's what the purpose of creation is revelation, right? right? So the early Christians realized that knowing of the resurrection saw the rising of the sun as a revelation each morning in our life as the rising of the son of God. And so early Christians always prayed facing the east. In fact, the archaeological digs which have uncovered the, the synagogues which were built in the first and second century, they know that they are Christian churches because uh, there's just stem walls left, right? Just like little stone patterns. They know they're Christian churches versus Jewish synagogues because they turn from facing toward Jerusalem, which is the way Jews pray, to turning toward the east. Then they know they found an early Christian church. Okay. Wow. Listen to what St. John Damascene says. It is not without reason or by chance that we worship toward the east. And since God is, is spiritual light and Christ in sacred scripture is called the son of justice and orient, the East should be dedicated to his worship for everything beautiful should be dedicated to God from whom everything, from whom everything that is good receives its goodness. Okay. So I, I, another hobby horse with has a guy is on liturgy. And that is that in the old days, you'll remember I'm, all of our members here gathered together. You remember some of you that may be a little grayer than I am. In the old days, when the priest turned his back on the people when he celebrated mass, right? Right. Wrong. No priest in the history of the church has ever turned his back on the priest. No more than you turn your back on the person in the pew behind you. You're not turning your back on them. You're all facing toward the Lord. Early Christians and Orthodox Christians, apostolic Christians from the earliest days prayed facing the East, priest and people together. Unfortunately, this idea of mass facing the people as a restoration of the early pristine Christianity was hoisted upon the church, and now virtually everywhere, priests face the people. This is a complete destruction of the interior of the liturgy, which is always oriented toward God, not oriented toward man. We must go back to a restoration of a proper orientation of the priest during the liturgy so that all of us together live in expectation of the rising of the son of justice who comes to purify us. Yeah, it's happening in some dioceses that uh, that the priests are beginning to restore the proper orientation of standing at the altar. It is still present in the Christian East today. I stand at the altar with the people facing toward God. Um, and uh, uh, may God, may, may it happen more and more. I, I'll tell you, to be honest with you, while I love the old traditional Latin mass, the beautiful hymns, the beautiful prayers, the very most important thing is the restoration of the orientation of the priests because it reorients the whole liturgy. And when you do that, then all the prayers are going to be right because our mentality is right. When you change that orientation, suddenly the prayers become vapid and uh, like not, nothing because you're, you're worshiping yourself. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Father has a guy who says, Why hey, I attend the parish there. that I do, ad yes. orientum. That's right. So I'll get off my hobby horses again as we're looking toward expectation of Jesus coming to Jerusalem now. That's the whole theme of this of this text of Malachi. The Lord is coming. It's the theme the church is placing before us in, in the liturgy. The Lord is coming. We're in expectation now. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's The second coming is, is going to happen. He's going to come and be present in our life. Are we ready to be purified by the Lord? Yeah. Yeah. The Lord comes to rule the earth with justice is the uh, the response for the responsorial psalm. 
I really like the connection here between worship and and the anticipation that you see in Psalm 98, our uh, our responsorial psalm for this weekend. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to rule the earth. He will rule the world with justice and the peoples with equity. That's right. And what is justice, Annie? Give me the old time definition. Write these down, guys. Give someone their due. To give to another is due, right? Well, what is due to another person? We've talked about this before, is that they are in the image and likeness of God, right? That's what that they're that they're restored to what they're supposed to be. Jesus is going to be the incarnate justice, right? He is the incarnation of man justified because we are made to be joined to the Lord. He made us to be in communion with him. Jesus is the New Testament. He is the new covenant because in him, God and man are joined together in an unbreakable bond because it's joined together uh, uh, by the eternal word of God, the second personal Holy Trinity, never more to be broken. This is why you can't have another covenant or another further revelation because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we were made to be. Yeah, Yeah, this beautiful Psalm, before the Lord, before he comes, for he comes to rule the earth. He will rule with the world with justice and the peoples with equity. This is why Jesus goes about his ministry healing, where he sees the parts of his kingdom out of joint, if you will, disconnected, not working the way they're supposed to be working, legs not walking, eyes not seeing. He goes and brings justice. That means he brings healing to them. Yeah. And he cuts out the sin and fills us up with his life. And this is his ministry. This is what he's doing. And as the Lord comes to the temple in the gospel today, this is exactly the purpose of his coming. All right, let's read it. We are in Luke chapter 21, and we are starting with verse five. Here we go. Luke chapter 21, you said? Luke 21, starting verse five. Okay. You ready? Yep. Okay, here we go. While some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, All that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Then they asked him, Teacher, when will this happen? And what sign will there be when all these things are about to happen? He answered, See that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has come. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for such things must happen first, but it will not immediately be the end. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be powerful earthquakes, famines, and plagues from place to place. And awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. Before all this happens, however, they will seize and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and to the prisons, and they will have you led before kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to your giving testimony. Remember, you are not to prepare your defense beforehand, for I myself shall give you a wisdom in speaking that all your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. You will even be handed over by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death 
you will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair on your head will be destroyed. By your perseverance, you will secure your lives. It's quite a reading that we have to discuss here. Um, just to kind of get the context first, Father. So last Sunday, uh, it was the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus over the resurrection. That was mm -hmm. uh, Luke chapter 20, um, and we ended with verse 38. So we've skipped over a, a little chunk of Luke to get to this passage. Is there anything important that we need to well, know? Well, there, there is, if you want to understand the inner dynamic of what's going on, which is what I, I love, right? I, I love geography and I love the story behind the story because I think if that's missed, then the gospel just becomes kind of like all these sayings of Jesus. And they're nice right. sayings, but out of context, they don't have the teeth, you know? Yeah. But it's the context that gives the teeth, okay? So in chapter 20, verse 19, the scribes and his chief priests tried to lay hands on him at uh, that very hour, for they feared the, the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So Jesus comes in and he comes to the temple and he starts throwing a, basically, he starts picking a fight with them, right? He starts telling parables that they perceive as against them. And he is, I mean, look how many times it's just on Sunday for our coffee hour after church. And it happens almost every Sunday. Father, when you're preaching, why are you always preaching at me? Oh, you're making me uncomfortable because <laughs> I always preach about changing people's lives. I'm talking about tithing and stuff like that. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's time we stop you know, soft peddling the gospel. We got to tell the truth. Yeah. And here Jesus goes to the temple, having come all the way from Galilee, all this stuff going on around him, all these conversations behind his back. And he finds this enough with the behind the back. Let's have it out. He goes in the temple and he picks the fight. He starts telling parables against these guys and they tell, they know what he's saying. Right. So now they're afraid. They want to destroy him. Yeah. So they come in there and they try to pick him off intellectually. They try to pick him off by argument. And that's this passage going on. Verse 21 and following at verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to, to Caesar? I think I said this last week, right? That the, I explained this whole thing about the temple coin. Oh yeah. The fact the that they had Caesar. it in their pocket. They're allowed, right. They're not allowed to have it in the temple. So he, so he draws them out. He's like, show me the coin. And they show it to him and they reveal themselves as, as contradicting the law. In verse 27, the Sadducees tried to go trip him up on this marriage business and mm -hmm. resurrection. So then my favorite one is in verse 40, the whole thing coming back. I'm going to go back all the way. Remember the transfiguration? Remember everything we've done since then? Remember his path all the way down. We've been talking about all these things that have been going on and all the people behind the scenes. Finally, verse 40, <laughs> they no longer dared to ask him any questions okay? <laughs> he shut their mouths up in the temple but now what does he do oh pious oh he goes calm after. jesus wearing the ponytail with the birkenstocks as soon as they shut their mouths but he said to them so now he goes in and boom and how can they say that the christ is david's son so now you see they've been trying to trip him up with intellectual arguments and jesus flips it on them and goes after them and the lord said to my lord so forth like that yeah and then verse 45 and in the hearing of all the people he said to his disciples so so he so here's what happens now he goes and he shuts their mouths he then asks them a question they can't answer and then he turns to his disciples in their view in their hearing right 
And in the hearing of all the people, he turns to his disciples, no longer quiet, no longer on the side. Beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and love salutations, the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor, the feast, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make their prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Well, who's standing there? The scribes. The scribes are standing there, right? All the lawyers, all the guys, all the power, the rulers are all standing there and they're seething at him. And he says, be careful of that guy right there. So, no, no, you know what's coming now. It's just like they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. And then he says, as he looked up, and then he has this thing about the riches, right? About what real riches are. Um, and then begins to prophesy the fall of Jerusalem, which is what our passage is today. Okay. Now, a lot of people misinterpret this passage as being a prophecy of the end of the world. Okay. What you have to understand is in biblical terms, Jerusalem was. Um, the, it was the microcosmos, the micro, it was a microcosm. That mm-hmm. is that the whole of the universe was summed up in Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes Jerusalem is spoken of in cosmological, am I using that word right? Terms. Yeah. yeah? And, uh, and this is exactly what Jesus does. It's what the prophets do. And it's now what Jesus does. Well, what's Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking to his disciples right? And he's warning them that they are going to kill you, okay? Because this is what the disciples are worried about. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. Is he going to take the throne or are they going to kill him? And if they kill him, they're going to kill us. That's the conversation going on. That's what they're worried about. And this is what Jesus says. That guy right there, he's going to kill you. But the Lord is the Lord of the resurrection and of life, which is what we've just been doing in our looking at these passages, right? Jesus is in the, remember Maccabees from last week. Remember this passage from last week, right? Mm-hmm. It's right there. Verse 38. Sorry. Chapter 20, verse 38. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live in him. Right? See how these themes are continuing on now. They're fearing for their life. And Jesus says, this temple that you see, this thing's coming down. And it did. And they're going to kill you but you're going to live. Mm. And for us as Christians, knowing the gospel and knowing about the resurrection. And of course, this text is written after the resurrection, right? Luke's not writing. Right. This as Jesus is, you know, no, this is, this is later. So they, we are reading it as the early Christians read it, having seen what was taking place. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the temple, this, this, this microcosm, there's going to be earthquakes. The sky is going to open up. The heavens are going to wear, God's going to come in his power, and this whole thing's going to be destroyed, right? The temple is going to be cleansed, and the men that are doing evil things are going to be burned up. Yeah? Hello, Malachi. That's what's going on. That's what Malachi is prophesying, and it's exactly what Jesus is doing coming to the temple. Okay? So when you read this, we, we read it in its historical setting as a prophecy that Jesus is giving about 70 AD. Okay? But you say, but Father Hezekiah, doesn't this mean something to me? And I say, absolutely. Jesus is coming. He's coming in exactly, I'm looking at my calendar, um, you know, uh, uh, just, just under two months. Yeah. And he's going to cleanse the temple, this temple. And are you ready for that cleansing? 
Are you ready to be purified? If you are, you better stop cheating God and offering lame animals and leftover plastic flowers. And for God's sake, don't bring the broken plastic Christmas tree into the church. You want to bring a Christmas tree into the church, which I'm not a fan of? Bring a live Christmas tree. And not the small one. They rejected it at the place. Get the biggest, nicest Christmas tree you can. Because when the Lord comes to the temple and he sees your scrawny old Christmas tree, don't you think he saw you doing that? When he sees you pull out your wallet and give, where's my, and give God what's left over, is nothing in there. Stop it and make your commitment to the Lord. Begin by fasting. Increase your prayer. Increase your tithing so that the Lord finds a temple worthy of his presence because the temple he found there was forsaken. Their house was forsaken. And what did he do? He came in and brought justice and restored the widows and the orphans. Yeah, restored the paralytics and restored those to what God wanted them to be, filled with his divine life giving of themselves to the Lord as he has given himself to us. Yeah, I'm on a big old hobby horse right now. I'm going to read you St. Hilary of Poitiers. This entire saying of the Lord refers to the Jews and the heretics. Quote, brother will deliver up brother to death and the father, his child and children will rise against parents. The family and a single house will disagree among themselves. This means that whereas the people were formerly united, for the people is meant under the names of parents and relatives. We will now be exposed to vicious hatred. We will be offered up to earthly judges and kings who attempt to secure either our silence or our cooperation. For we are to bear testimony to these people and to the Gentiles. And after that testimony has been born, our persecutors will be deprived of the excuse that they are ignorant of divine things. When Christ has been prophesied by the words of the martyrs amid the tortures of savage persecutors, the way will be open for the Gentiles to believe in him, though they remain stubborn. Okay, so there you have it. My brothers and sisters, don't expect persecutions not to come. Don't expect wolves in sheep's clothing. Don't expect so-called Catholic politicians like Biden and Pelosi to suddenly stop aborting babies. They've been there since the beginning. They will continue to try to persecute us, but the Lord is the Lord of life. No matter what they do to us, we will live because we believe in the resurrection. I have to give you one last quotation from St. Augustine before we move on. We should have no doubt that our mortal flesh also will rise again in the end of the world. This is the Christian faith. Your flesh will rise. You will rise bodily because the son of justice is coming. This is the Catholic faith. This is the apostolic faith. Okay. Annie, I think I'm about 45 hobby horses in this, this study together. Let's <laughs> let's finish up. Okay. Yeah, let's go to um Second Thessalonians. As I was listening yeah. to you, I was I was I had St. Paul in mind um because I love the the end of this passage in and just what you were saying that you know we need to be working or else we're not going to eat <laughs> mm-hmm. not going to eat up the body of christ i suppose i don't know if that's what paul meant in this passage but um all right give us our passage know, what i was thinking second thessalonians chapter three and we are starting with verse seven 
Second Thessalonians. Don't go to First Thessalonians and get confused. Second Thessalonians. Yeah. Second Thessalonians, chapter three, verse seven. Yep. Brothers and sisters, you know how one must imitate us. For we did not act in a disorderly way among you, nor did we eat food received free from anyone. On the contrary, in toil and drudgery, night and day, we worked so as not to burden any of you. Not that we do not have the right. Rather, we wanted to present ourselves as a model for you so that you might imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, we instructed you that if anyone was unwilling to work, neither should that one eat. We hear that some are conducting themselves among you in a disorderly way by not keeping busy, but by minding the business of others. Such people we instruct and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and to eat their own food. I gotta, I think I'm going to use this epistle in my in church on Sunday. I think I'm going to forego <laughs> the epistle as a life and have my people listen to this. So good. It's so, it's so good. good. St. John Chrysostom says, for the laws of Paul are laid down not only for the poor, but also for all of us. And he, he says many oftentimes start investigating the needy and the poor and the un, the those that don't have jobs, stuff, saying, saying, you know, why don't you? What's wrong with you? And so forth. But he, he says, for someone to become such a savage and a human judge and not impart any forgiveness to the unemployed, does this not involve extreme cruelty? Therefore, what did Paul ordain by law? They say, when he said to the Thessalonians, if any man does not wish to work, neither let him eat, so that you, too, may also hear these things. You should discuss the words of Paul, not only for the poor and individual, but even for yourself. So, again, rather than point the finger, which is so easy when we're talking about scripture, look at them. Look <laughs> Especially at the, when we're even, reading it. Even this, it was, we're doing this Bible study about tithing, right? And charity on top of that. We can all, I, I myself can grow in my charity for others. We have to receive these things as Paul as the scriptures are intended as, as ultimately speaking to us. And we want to change our own lives also, and not be sitting idly by being willing to work in the vineyard of the Lord. Yeah. Any, the connection here between the gospel and, and the, the epistles is a little bit, you know, not, but there's, there is one thing I think we can pull out that's very important. And that is St. Paul sets himself up as a model, right? And why is he a model? Because he can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right. And he becomes a model for us. And this is the beautiful thing about the tradition of the church. Those things which are handed down to us from the apostles, from Christ himself, are sure and trustworthy ways to salvation. Yeah. And I go back to that thing that we talked about in Malachi about the son of justice and facing toward the east. Um, this is an apostolic tradition that we've received. And we should embrace this because it is it, it, it was a way of holiness which produced saints. Yeah. It's a beautiful line from uh from uh uh, Pope Benedict, when he gave freedom to the traditional Latin mass, uh, he explained to the bishops what former generations had held as sacred must remain sacred for us also. Yeah, it, that certainly remains true for us, regardless of how your priest faces ma mass, whatever the case may be. All of us should have this interior sense of expectation, as St. Paul had a sense of expectation, and never stop working in the vineyard of the Lord because we're, we're the, of course, the word liturgy means the, the work of the people, right? Constantly tilling the soil, constantly applying ourselves to good deeds, constantly giving our tithe, constantly presenting our offerings to the Lord. 
so that this life of self-giving love might become ours now, which is what we want for all eternity. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.